0: Yeah, it was exactly 20 years ago this week that I was playing a Thanksgiving football game, uh, American football, on the front lawn of Cal Baptist, just a bunch of young guys out there running around, tackling each other, should have been doing that. My brother got a really bad bruise for like three months, but uh, there happened to be a Scottish guy on my team, and he had this great accent, and as we were chatting between downs, he uh, Said so his name was Robert Elliott, and he was a pastor at Reformed Baptist Church of Riverside. And I had really been looking for a church that taught the gospel, that preached exegetically, verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And I thought, well, I'll go check it out. I had visited many other churches, and um, I'm so glad I did because I haven't left after 20 years. He was preaching through Philippians uh, at times, I felt like crying in the midst of the service because my soul was starving for preaching, for the, the preaching of God's word, and uh, it was a tremendous benefit in my own walk as a young man, uh, drawing me closer to Christ, and eventually now I consider it a privilege to call him a co-elder over the last couple of years, and I bring greetings from all of the elders, all four of us at Reform Baptist Church in Riverside. We appreciate you guys. We love that there's a church here. In Riverside, that is still preaching the word of God, that is not getting caught up in all the winds of doctrine, whether it's right wing, left wing, middle wing, we're so divided these days, and yet that we can look to Christ. That is our hope, that is our desire, uh, that we are praying regularly, Maranatha, Lord, come quickly, but until then, Lord, help us to stand firm on the word of God, proclaiming it, whether persecution or trial come may we be known as those who are faithful to Christ. And it's it's wonderful to have other brothers and sisters here who would hold to the same desire, the same calling. If you would turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 11, that's where we're going to spend our time this morning. And um, you'll see here in a moment, I, I believe Pastor uh, Mike was telling me that some of you have been reading through uh, Gentle and Lowly by Pastor Dane Ortland, And I'm going to be straight up honest that I... This sermon I put together a year ago when uh, our church was in the midst of all the craziness of the pandemic, and I had been reading that book, and I was so encouraged uh, by the reminder of who Christ is and how precious he is to us as his uh, followers, Uh, and so I'm like, I want to preach on on this passage, and it was such an encouragement to me, and I pray it is my heart's prayer that is encouraging for you today. We'll look at uh, much of the kind of middle to latter part of Matthew 11, but let me just read right now Matthew 11, um, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, And no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son. And anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Let's pray once again. Father God, we come to you once again this morning, a very needy people. Lord, we need you to send your spirit to open our eyes and to open our ears. We need your spirit to work on our hearts. Lord, we want to hear the words of Jesus today, that not only would we heed them, that we would all the more be enamored with Christ, who he is what he came to do for us lord we need your help in these things and so we beg of you come and do a great work in our midst for the glory of your name and we ask this in our most precious savior's name jesus the christ amen so i wonder if you have ever been invited to something that was really promoted as like a big deal um it's an invitation to come and check out this brand new restaurant. They've got the best food I've ever had. And then you got there and, well, it was okay. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't as great as you thought it was. Uh, or, you know, somebody's like, you've got to check out this movie. I was blown away. It's amazing. I have tended to use a little hyperbole with certain movies that moved me in certain ways. And then people watch it and they're like, eh, it was okay. Just a couple nights ago, Joe versus the Volcano with my kids. They're like, what was that? I'm like, it's is great, isn't it? Uh, they were not afterwards that thrilled with my invitation to watch the movie. This um, coming week, there'll be massive invitations all over social media and the news. Black Friday deals. Early Friday morning. Actually, no, we're opening up on Thanksgiving night. Forget Thanksgiving. We're open early Thanksgiving morning. Come and get it. Big screen TVs, you know, as big as your garage for only $50. And you're going to go down there and like, my goodness, I want that. And then there was only one. Uh, (laughs) That's the reality of most invitations in this world. Now, sometimes we're invited to things that we actually really enjoy. Uh, I, I can think of one of the the greatest radio ad campaigns the last several years for a mortgage company. It's the biggest no-brainer in the history of mankind. I mean, come on. If you don't take up this deal, you're stupid. I mean, that's the kind of the, the invitation, isn't it? Well, today we're looking at what I believe truly is the greatest invitation offered to humanity. And what's amazing about it is there's no marketing campaign behind it. There's no ad wizard behind it. And it's summed up with, with no massive lettering, uh, letters or glitter or glitz. It's just three simple words Come to me. And I want to just ponder this invitation today. It is so important. And it's not just in, we tend to think of this as the, the Billy Graham sort of message Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, it's appropriate. Jesus was calling sinners to him. But we're going to see, too, that it is for us every single day as a Christian. So I just really have four little areas I want to look at. What is the call that Jesus is making? What is the nature of the one who's doing the calling, the nature of the caller? Third, the context in which this call was made, the actual historical moment when it was made. And then who is he calling? Those who are called So let's just think about these things. First, the call itself. As I said, come to me. It's very clear that it is an open invitation. There's no like uh, parameters attached to it. Come to me if you're good looking. Come to me if you are a Jew. Come to me if you have some sort of prerequisite. No, it is an open call and it actually has a bit of urgency behind it. Come to me now. Not come to me, all you who are above six feet tall, in another week. Come to me if you have a runny nose tomorrow and I'll give you some medicine. It's come to me. Come right now. There's an urgency behind it. In fact, it's almost kind of like a parent. It's not scolding. It's just like, oh, you're on the edge of a, you know, the road here. Come to me. Get, get away from that road. And there's affection behind it. There's, it's a personal invitation. Jesus always called people openly. He was always calling people to himself. And it should strike us as a little odd because as we read the Gospels, we see that Jesus is revealed not just as a son of man. He is the son of God. And the more we read of who Jesus is, John's prologue, which I preached here a few years ago, I just, I love the prologue. It is so just packed full of riches of who Christ is. He is the creator. He's the creator of everything that we see and know and experience. He is the second member of the Trinity, the God-man, holy, holy, holy Jesus. And he is calling people dirty, filthy, fallen people to himself. In some ways, it should be a little shocking. Why are you calling us to you? We don't have any business being near you. But Jesus was about inviting people to himself. We see this. Here's just a few examples of Jesus called the disciples. I know some of you talked to a few of you here who have watched the series, The Chosen. I love that that they chose that as the title uh, and that they are exploring the different people who Jesus called to himself, those who he chose, as we'll see here, to follow him. Matthew chapter four, this great invitation that Jesus gives to Andrew. I mean, Andrew's like, he has seen Jesus do some amazing things. And he's like, where are you staying? Can I, uh, I'd like to know a little more about you. And Jesus just says simple words, come and see. Come and see what I'm all about. Come and see what I'm teaching. Come and see what I'm doing. And we know that the Lord used that in a great way, not only in Andrew's life, but what Andrew do, he ran to his brother, Peter. You've got to come, the Messiah is here. Come and see him. I mean, it's, it's an infectious call, isn't it? Those who've come to see Jesus, boy, we want to invite people to come and see him as well. Jesus invited himself often when he was preaching. I think of John chapter 6, just a rich chapter of preaching from Jesus. I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will no longer hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. We're too used to these words, aren't we? Jesus is saying, Come to me and you will never hunger. You will never thirst again. That's a whole other sermon to preach, which is just beautiful. But those of us who have come to Christ already, we know what he's talking about. Boy, oh boy we were caught up in trying to figure out what the world was about and figure out what our life was all about. We were hungry. We thirsted. It was unquenchable because we tried this and that and nothing quenched it. Christ said, come to me and you will never hunger or thirst again. And what did he, and this one's so sweet, isn't it? In Matthew 19, the disciples as some children were wanting to come to Jesus. And they were like, no, no. Jesus is too busy for you kids. Get away. And that's reflective, by the way, of a first century mindset that's not just Jewish, it was worldly. Children didn't matter. Children had no rights, often were kicked to the side. And here the disciples say, no, no, no. And what does Jesus say? No, no, no. Suffer not the children to come unto me. Do not hinder the children to come unto me. Let them come to me. And of course, one more that I want to remember. After the resurrection, what did Peter do? Peter went back to his old ways. He went fishing. He still was a bit lost. He probably was still a bit stirred with how he denied Christ. And he was thinking, there's no way Christ will have anything to do with me. I'm done. I guess I'll go back to being a fisherman. And there he is fishing that one morning in John 21. And what does Jesus say to them? Hey, come and have breakfast. Simple invitations that had deep meaning behind them. And we know after that, Peter's restoration, uh, Christ's kind of reconfirmation of his calling and him sending him out into the world to be a fisher of men, to call others to Christ. Jesus is a very inviting, a very welcoming individual. And all who hear, that's why I prayed. There may used to be some of you going, what were you praying about? Open my ears, open my eyes. I can see, I can hear. We need spiritual ears. We need spiritual eyes so that we can see the invitation. So that's the call. It is open and it is loud and it is to everybody who can hear. The nature of the caller it's quite fascinating. Now, I already talked about how Christ was the creator. He's God himself, God incarnate, the God man. But, and, and he's all of those things. But right here in verse 29, and this is the premise of Dan Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, Jesus says he describes himself as gentle and lowly in heart. Now, I'm going to be honest. I've read this passage many times before. But really, I think up until the last year, year and a half, it never struck me of how Jesus described himself. I mean, he could say, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, for I am worthy of your praise. And he would be right to say that. For I am your maker. He'd be right to say that. For I am glorious and holy. He's right to say that. That's his nature. He's all of those things. But the one area that Christ zeroes in on as he makes this open call and, and shows us how welcoming he is. He says, let me, let me share with you who I am. At the heart of who I am, I am gentle and I am lowly. And that's not what we would expect from our prophet, our priest, our king. The king of kings and the Lord of lords. Gentle and lowly in heart. Now, if you've been reading through the book, Dan Ortland gives us a, a couple examples About what this means. That gentle itself is translated in Matthew chapter 5 as meek in the Beatitudes, that the meek will inherit the earth. And also in Matthew 21, as Jesus uh, fulfills Zechariah's prophecy, Jesus the king would come humble and mounted on a donkey. So this word gentle is meek, it is humble. It is mild, and lowly" is an interesting word, because it refers to something that doesn't really rise high off the ground. You could say, you know, the unlowly palm trees, because they're very high off the ground. But a tumbleweed would be something we could all appreciate and see, especially on a windy day like today. Maybe you see one going down Columbia Avenue here. They are lowly to the ground. These are bushes that don't rise that high. And if you're a fan of the Sons of the Pioneers like I am, there's an awesome song. Stumbling, tumbling, tumbling weeds, see them rolling along. It describes exactly what this word lowly means. So metaphorically, what Jesus is saying is, I am the opposite of proud. I'm someone of low degree. I am humble. I have humbled myself to come to you. Here's how Dane uh, writes it in his book. For all of his resplendent, that means magnificent glory and dazzling holiness, his supreme uniqueness and otherness, no one in human history has ever been more approachable than Jesus Christ. No prerequisites, no hoops to jump through. And that's exactly what Paul was trying to describe to the Philippians. In fact, he describes it to the Colossians, to the Ephesians, to the Philippians. This is something that I'm sure resonated with Paul in such a profound way. That Christ existed for all of eternity as God, but he didn't consider it to be any less God when he said, "I will come down in the form of a man." That's Philippians 2, right? He humbled himself. He meekly and mildly and lowly came down. There's a term in our modern world we call slumming it, right? That means you're a rich kid, but you're living amongst the, you know, the, the poor because you just, you're enjoying it. You're slumming it. Well, it sounds almost uh, irreverent, but Christ slummed it. He came to the slums of the world. He humbled himself and there's a purpose for this because he came to seek the lost. He didn't come to put himself up on the throne of Caesar and say, I am the rightful king of the world, bow and worship me. There was a purpose behind what he did. And he didn't need to just come show his glory. Paul explains to the Romans, Romans 1, that's scene, That's undebatable. He came to deal with our sin. He emptied himself so that he would come to us because we could not go to him. Here's how the author of Hebrews, many believe he's Paul. I lean that way. But Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Praise God the Holy Spirit inspired this to be written. This helps us understand this gentle and lowly prophet, priest, and king. He understands us. Often when we don't understand ourselves, And we can, if we are in Christ Jesus, with confidence, not just take a number or maybe he'll hear my request or as as some, it breaks my heart in, in other religions, think that I can pray to an alternate mediator who might then take a step into the throne room and whisper in the Father's ear. No, we with confidence can draw near to Christ Jesus. Why? Because he came to us. He provided that way for us. And this is, I mean, as the author of Hebrews, this is the throne of grace. We have received mercy. We find grace to help us in every need. Praise God. He knows our temptations. He faced the temptations. We don't have it written on every sin that he was tempted to fall into. But we can with confidence know he was tempted in all points but without sin. And that is why we, and that is why he invites us to come to him. The nature of the one who calls us is one who we can trust, one who we can relate to. I've had conversations like, I just don't, I can't understand God. It's too big for me to comprehend. And in some ways you're right. But he condescended. He is transcendent. But he condescended. He came to us. He is gentle and lowly. And he provides mercy and grace beyond what we can even comprehend. So that's the call. And that's the nature of the call. Now let's just think about the context that this is given in. In some ways, it's a bit strange. I'm just going to say that. In fact, let's look at verse 20 through 24 and just read what was happening right before this. Verse 20, Matthew writes, then Jesus began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Corazon. Woe to you, Bethesda. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, We need a, like a, almost a Selah moment right there. Let that sink in. Jesus is denouncing Bethesda, Chorazin, and Capernaum, all what they would call lake cities, cities up near the, the region of Galilee. And he denounces them because they had not repented. They had not come to him. He had done mighty works. All of the early miracles that we read about were done in those areas. Those people saw. They could, the the rumor mill was unbelievable, I'm sure. Did you hear Jesus did this today? Did you hear that happened that day? Uh, People were raised from the dead. Fish were multiplied. Uh, Lepers were healed. Blind can see. So how is it in the midst of this? Because there's no one who has arrived in Israel that's doing what Jesus did. Prophets did some pretty amazing things. You read Elijah's story. You read Moses' story. There were some pretty profound works there. But there was nobody like Jesus doing what he had done. So how is it that these people saw what Jesus did, and we know he didn't just do miracles. He proclaimed the good news of the kingdom. How is it that they didn't repent? How is it that they didn't follow him? And I think what we see here in the context here, what Jesus is pointing out is that they were utterly self-righteous. They did not see their need. Oh, hey, I'd love to get some extra fish and, and bread after that miracle. Yeah, I'm hungry, I'll eat it. But repent of my sin? What sin? I keep the law. I do a good job. I keep the Sabbath. But notice here the contrast of what Jesus is doing. And Jesus is always driving to the heart of the issue, something we always have to remind ourselves of. Jesus points out three Jewish cities and three Gentile cities. John Calvin writes that Tyre and Sidon were known in that day uh, as just abhorrent places of ungodliness, pride, debauchery, and other vices. Las Vegas on steroids. And of course, we don't even have to, I don't even have to go into the details of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? (laughs) Uh, It's still used today they were that bad. Oh, San Francisco's like Sodom. And non-Christians will say this, you know? We know what they're talking about like Sodom and Babylon are the two cities that have lasted for thousands of years as iconic, horrible, fallen, sinful cities. But what Christ is showing in his condemnation of these Jewish cities is that, look at as bad as Tyre and Sidon is, as bad as you remember what Sodom was all about, if I had come to them, and done what I have done for you, they would have ripped their clothes, they would have put ash on their forehead, they would have repented. And if that's not condemnation enough to say, I mean, that is horrible. We have an example too in the Old Testament, don't we? Of a Gentile city that God sent a prophet to that repented, Nineveh upwards of some speculate 2 million people on their knees repenting before a holy god they never even thought of before so it could happen i think jesus i'm not thinking, i know jesus knew that and i guarantee you some of these cities were oh yeah like nineveh yeah whatever there were just a bunch of Jonas, unfortunately you see bethesda corazon and capernaum Jesus had done great things in these cities. He had spent much time in these cities preaching and teaching, particularly Capernaum. But they were completely self-righteous. And then Jesus prays, and I read it at the beginning here in verses 25 through 27, he prays a couple interesting things. Father, I am thankful that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding or the learned, as one translation would say. He says that only those that Jesus choose will know the Father. The so-called wise of the world, those who uh, seem educated or that they are with the world's ways, the ones who think they have it all together, the great tragedy is that their sin has blinded them to the fact of who Christ is. And the Bible says over and over and over again, it is impossible for them to see that their sin is offending a holy God. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't have family members, co-workers, neighbors who don't feel bad for the things they've done. I mean, I I I know I've had plenty of conversations with non-Christians who would say, I regret that I did this, I regret that I acted this way. It's not saying that they don't feel from time to time terrible for the things that they've done, but Paul defines it to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians that it is a worldly sorrow that doesn't last it doesn't lead to true repentance repentance before a holy god and here these cities saw these great words they heard the great wor- they saw the great works they heard the great words of christ but they were content in their own self-righteousness Calvin writes, their pride and darkness of mind goes beyond the Gentile cities in malice and incurable contempt of God. You see, these Jewish cities had synagogues, didn't they? They had rabbis that would unroll the scrolls of Isaiah and read it to them. They were waiting for a Messiah. They had the Word of God, they had the very Messiah in their presence. But they said, it's okay, I don't need you. I've got it figured out. And I really believe, now there's a whole other sermon that could be preached on Christ and the Father's election. And this is definitely a passage that you can go to along with Romans 3 and Ephesians 1 to really get an understanding of of God's election. And that's clearly taught here. But within the context, I believe Christ's prayer is he's saying, thank you, Father, for not revealing these things to the wise, quote, unquote, because he's praising his Father for defending his holiness. You see, God will not defile himself. He will not remain in the presence of sin. And so whether it's the blatant sinners of Tyre and Sidon and Sodom or whether it's the blatant legalist self-righteous who think they've got it all together, both are lost. Both have no hope. And the worst tend to be those who think they are okay and have it together. That's why Christ called the Pharisees whitewashed tombs. That's what he's dealing with. On the outside, you look great. On the inside, you're rottenness. You are death, and you are leading people astray. You need a millstone thrown around your neck because you are misleading. So some of you may be saying, okay, if that's the context, well, then who is Jesus calling? If the totally blatant, unregenerate, living for the self sinner isn't seeing and hearing Christ, and then the one who's so religious, who keeps the law and has it all together, they can't see or hear Christ. Who's he calling? Well, let's look again at verse Twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Come to me, the open invitation. All who labor and heavy laden. Now, I said earlier there wasn't a prerequisite of those who were tall, those who were Jew or Gentile. There, there wasn't, but there is now one. Actually, we see here: all who labor and are heavy laden. He's inviting those who, like young Christian in The Pilgrim's Progress, have a burden so unbearable on their back. They are aware of their sin. And in some ways, they don't even know what to do with it. Matthew Henry writes, the convinced sinner is heavy laden with guilt and terror. And the tempted and afflicted believer has labors and burdens. Christ invites all to come to him for rest to their souls. He alone gives this invitation. Men come to him when feeling their guilt and misery. You see, Jesus wants to take the burdened, the burden off of the burdened, and he offers rest. Now this is not a purchase. Don't even begin to think that. But it is a strange exchange that Jesus wants to take your sin and replace it with his rest. Once again, it sounds ridiculous. Why? It goes against our modern way of thinking. No, I need to earn it. I need to make my way in this world. I need to get it together, and then maybe I'll consider it. How is man saved from his sins? By giving Jesus your sin. No, 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 no. I'll clean myself up. That's not the gospel no, 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 I must really understand what it means to completely give myself to Jesus. I have to really understand the full cost of putting my hand to the plow. I have to truly submit to his lordship or, no, that's not the gospel. The prerequisite is that you know you are labored, that you are heavy laden, that you are burdened. Jesus came to save sinners, amen? That is the gospel. Jesus came to save those who could not save themselves, amen? So if you are weary, if you are burdened, come to him. And that's it when it comes to salvation. He wants to take your burden. He alone can give your soul rest. And this rest is so important. He says it twice, doesn't he? Verse 28 and 29. Come to me, all of you who are weary, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I'm gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. Oh, I love the good news. And it's interesting here that he says, Take my yoke upon you, but it's easy. Now, kids here are like, what are you talking about? Eggs. Um, and I'm, <laughs> you know, and I could say a really bad dad joke. I'm not yoking around here. Um, <laughs> good. I had to get you to wake again. But a yoke was some sort of contraption often made out of wood that would, you know, you put over the neck of an oxen and over the, the neck of the other oxen, and it would keep them in line. And, and for an ox, it, I mean, for a human looking at an ox, it looked like a really heavy piece of wood, keeping them um, so they keep in the straight line and so they can plow. And it was a burden. I mean, we, we, it's no, it's no uh, surprise that the old term for these animals were beasts of burden, because uh, they carried heavy burdens. So in the agricultural uh, world that Christ is preaching, this, everyone got it. Um, and it's interesting to note that the rabbis of the day referred to the Ten Commandments. They would often refer to it as the yoke of the law. They saw the constraint as a good thing, and it's true. The law is a mirror for those who don't know Christ and it shows our failings. We can't keep this law. But the the rabbis would use it in a way that like a checklist. There's the law. I'm going to bear it and I'm going to keep it and I'm going to do good. But Paul goes on and explains over and over and over that this yoke, this master, the law condemned And sin was a horrible master. And that burden that we had, no matter how much we thought we could get it together, was bringing us lower and lower and lower into the mire. Because it was not able to save us. It did its job in condemning us, it did its job in reflecting God's holy character. But it was heavy. John Piper writes, other yokes seem easy. Other burdens feel light. It's all an illusion. In the end, they enslave and destroy. Only Jesus gives deep and lasting rest and joy. Only Jesus supports the burdens he gives. Only Jesus uses a yoke to lift his team up. And I think that's how Dan Ortland talks about it. In some ways, Christ's yoke is filled with helium because through the power of the Spirit, He's lifting us up rather than us being brought down. And that's what sin's yoke was doing to us. But Christ came and what did he do? He put that yoke on himself. And for 33 years, he lived a perfect life. He kept it perfectly. We couldn't do it. He did it. And upon that cross, he took our judgment for every single time We broke that law, and that burden on our back got heavier and heavier. This is why Christ's yoke is easy and light. This is why the Christian can say in the midst of life's worst tempest, worst trials, that I'd rather have Jesus than silver and gold because if I have peace with Christ, I have everything. We used to think we were free and independent, didn't we? But we were enslaved to a master. Jesus came, he gave us his rest that he earned by keeping the law, and he gives our souls now purpose and rest. And let me just say, now as a Christian, the law has a new place in our lives. It reminds us of of God's character, And it helps us to see how we are to live as a Christian. But we are to never put that back on our shoulders again. Because I guarantee you, I've done it. And I start feeling burdened and heavy and lowly, not in a good way. And then I turn to Jesus. Say, Lord, you've already done this. Why am I trying to earn favor with your father again? Oh, forgive me. So maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian. Maybe you're visiting in town for Thanksgiving coming up here in a few days. Maybe you're a young person who lives in the home and you've just not heard the gospel. You've heard it, right? If you attend this church, you've heard it every week. You've heard it in your home. But you haven't heard it. And it says that it went down to your heart. This is the good news. Young or old alike. Come to Jesus. It is the biggest no-brainer in the history of mankind. You can never save yourself, but there's a Savior. You can never earn your salvation, but there's a Savior. And he wants to take your sin. He's not afraid of your sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. He doesn't go, ooh, you sinned i got to have at least a week of decontamination in front me. You know, we've lived in the era of uh, quarantining, right? Oh, no, I've sinned. Jesus can't come be with me for 14 days. I think it's down to 10 days now, right? Uh, no, no, no. Come to me. All of you who are weary and heavy laden, you who are burdened by your sin. If you've seen you, you have, you are a sinner. You do put other things before God. That's what idols are. You do prefer to watch football rather than the Lord's Day. That can be another idol. I'm not saying that you go home this afternoon. Let's not get into that. But we all know the things that we put ahead of him. Kids, you know you do not keep the fifth commandment, right? Honor your mother and father. All right, kids, real quick. Is there anybody here who has kept it? (sighs) For 2,000 years, no one has raised their hand, honestly. (laughs) We do not honor our mother and father perfectly. We have a burden, but Jesus says, come to me. And I implore you today, old and young alike, if you've not come to Christ do not be one of those cities that had the gospel clearly presented and had seen the mighty works of Christ and reject him today because your judgment may be greater than those living how they want to live out in the world because you were given opportunity after opportunity. But I'll wrap up with this. Dear Christians, the call is not just when you came to Christ a year ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago. It is a continuous call to us daily. We were singing a song about his new morning mercies just this morning here. Jesus is still calling his followers to come to him. Just as you heard the gospel that very first time, you need to today... Come to him because we have this wretched man that's still abiding with us. We still have this sinful flesh that we still live with. We still fall into extreme, I'll use a big theological word, antinomianism. I mean, I don't need the law and I don't need God. I can do it all on my own. And then we swing the next day to the extreme legalist and I'm doing so good and I got it all together. That's the Christian bipolarity. <laughs> We're both antinomians and legalists all at the same time when we take our eyes off of Christ, when we are not coming to him. So don't put that yoke back on your shoulders. Christ wants to give you rest each and every day. We sinfully forget that it is Christ who is at work in us, both to will and to, for his will, for his glory. So, dear Christian, if you find yourself weary this morning, if you find yourself burdened, Jesus is calling you once again. Come to me, weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I mentioned Peter earlier. We know he fell three times in one night. And yet, later in his life, he could write these words in his first epistle, Cast all of your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. He knew that personally. He knew what it was to be restored and and, and to be reminded to look to Christ again. The devil would have us believe the lie that Jesus doesn't want us anymore. Have you heard that before? Man, you screwed up. That's one too many times. Remember that 70 times seven, forgive them, or 70 times 70, forgive them? Well, do the math, you're won over. Now, that's not the gospel. He's a liar. Like Apollyon in Pilgrim's Progress, when he just confronts Christian and says, look at you miserable sinner. Time and time again, you have failed. Time and time again, you have drifted away. Time and time again, you have shamed the name of your king. But with the shield of faith and the sword of truth, Christian stands firm and says, yeah, you're right. And I really regret that because my Savior died for me. And I hate that I have defamed his name. And I hate that I have drifted. But you know what? His word says, and then he just starts swinging The word of God, the promises of God, that he who began a good work in you will be what? Faithful to complete it. He is the author and the finisher. You have been saved by grace through what? Faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works of you, so that no one may boast. Come to Jesus, dear Christian. Ask him to renew your spirit. Ask him to forgive you of your sins. He promises his yoke is easy. He promises to give you rest. This is the repentant life. And sadly, we will probably time and time again fall into things where we have to repent again. It's not an excuse. At the end of Ephesians, Paul reminds them, you're saved by grace through faith alone, in Christ alone, but stand firm against the schemes of the evil one. There are means that we take up, and one of them is right here. Do not neglect the gathering together of the saints. Exhort one another, encourage one another. You right here today may be the very means of encouraging a brother or sister who is weary and burdened. I'll end with this magnificent quote from our brother Charles Spurgeon. From the first moment of your spiritual life until you are ushered into glory, the language of Christ to you will be, come, come unto me. Lord, we are grateful for the gospel. We are grateful that you sent your Son to do what we could not do on our own, to bear the burden of our sin by keeping the law perfectly, by taking our rightful judgment upon the cross. And in his death and resurrection, we have hope. Lord, that he did so with joy, seeing that you had given him a peculiar people, a unique people who would be called out of the kingdom of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of glory, the kingdom of light. And Lord, those of us who are in Christ Jesus today, we rejoice that you did this work on our behalf for your glory and that we get to be caught up in the greatest love of all, the Trinitarian love of the Father, Son, and Spirit, one God, three persons, all equally God, who've loved each other from eternity past. And Lord, that we can be called, oh Father, called your children, Lord, help us as followers of Christ to come to Christ, to hear the Spirit's call to repent when we need to. Lord, to be encouraged when we need the encouragement to turn from our sin when we need to turn from our sin, to trust in Christ alone through faith alone. Only you can keep us, Lord. Grace is that fetter that keeps us from drifting, and we're so grateful for it. And Lord, I pray for those here today Maybe an eight-year-old listening for the first time who never heard how simple it was that he or she needed to just come to Jesus, give him his sin, her sin, to have it to be forgiven and to find rest. Perhaps there's an 80-year-old today hearing the same thing, Lord. Oh, the spirit blows to and fro. We do not see, but you do. So do the mighty work only you can. Save sinners today, Lord, and use them for your glory. And Lord, fill our hearts with gratitude of the good news once again. In Jesus' name, amen.